Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. Why are you sad, Tim? You sound sad. <laughs> I don't know. Just the world. Are you now self-conscious about the way that you talk? A little. I just showed Tim a little something I was working on while editing the last episode. Usually I just delete all of the random stuff that I cut out. A lot of, like, ums and uh. Like. Like. Uh. You know, but, like, all that kind of random gibberish. All the filler, you know. That's the thing. You know, you listen to this, you don't realize, you know, we, we may sound like smooth talkers, but <laughs> in reality, it's a much different story. So, yeah, I just showed Tim... All of those little ums and buts sort of strung together for just an hour's worth of uh, of, of, of show. It was very unsettling. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> see now I'm like even self-aware about about it. I mean, it it definitely is weird because after editing, how many episodes now? Like thirty-one or thirty-two episodes. <sighs> that is insane. But after editing that many i've noticed the last couple weeks as we're talking i single in on those things and i'm like oh i'm gonna i gotta cut that out i gotta cut that out like i know in my mind now when when we're talking like what where we can make cuts and how we can can string things together usually the things that i want cut out stay in though which are usually usually my borderline (laughs) racist comments (laughs) Oh, believe me, there's been stuff that have been cut out that's too hot for talking movies, that's for sure. One thing I would like to just say right now, sometimes, like, larger portions of our conversations get cut out, and I just want to say without going too in-depth into it, um... (laughs) No, but see, that's a good one, because I I can easily cut that out. (laughs) I wholeheartedly endorse... John Turturro's film Fading Gigolo and think you guys should all go see it. It's a really good movie. Yeah, there there is a, all. <laughs> there is a chance that I might have cut out a conversation about Fading Gigolo from last episode because which hasn't even been I'm not even done editing it yet. I I watched Fading Gigolo right after watching the remake of Godzilla and it was a it made me feel really good. That's all. <laughs> I mean, I said more, mm-hmm. but I mean... But anyway. Maya Angelou is dead. That's true. Yeah. I've I've never read any of her stuff of you. Nope. Does that make us racist? No. Alright, cool. It just makes us, I don't know, lazy or... I don't read a lot of poetry. Yeah. I'm actually, right now I'm reading a book of poetry when we say Hiroshima. And I, I'm reading it because of... What, our focus for the month. I'm yeah. like, oh, Japanese films. Hey, I have this book of Japanese poetry. Hmm. Maybe now is the time to read it. Good stuff. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I've never really been too much into poetry. I don't know. Something about it just never really clicked with me. I mean, when I, growing up, I liked Poe. I think everybody likes Poe at some point. Yeah. I can never really get into like the beat poets i mm-hmm. like I, don't, I never got into howl but as far as like ginsburg is concerned i like kaddish or kaddish i guess i'm not sure how you pronounce it it's a jewish term it's like a really long poem 
about his mother's nervous breakdown and dealing with it and stuff. And, I have like an an audio file of him reading a poem. I think it's just called America or something like that. Oh yeah. Like when can I bu- walk into a supermarket and buy what I want with my good looks or something like that, right? That's the name of it? No, that's, no, that's a, one of the that's, lines. I think there's a line from it. Yeah, that sounds about right. It was cool, but I mean, again, like it's just—I don't know—something about poetry just never really—it's never really grabbed my my attention. You know, you go to—I was in—I've done like creative writing classes and stuff where we learn about different poets and poetry, and you're—you have to like write poetry in different kinds of styles and stuff. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting. I was actually talking about this with Luke, my brother, Luke for anyone who doesn't know that for some reason. I was just talking about that recently with him about how like poetry is kind of this fading art form in today's world where it doesn't really, you know, there's never like, can you imagine there being like a great, another great poet emerging who's like, who becomes like world famous who can like sell out copies of, you know, just his, or her poetry. I wonder if that's related to like the rise of pop music. Yeah, that that's I think that's actually very true, because all of the people who would in the past have been writing poetry are now writing song lyrics. I'm an award-winning poet. Are you really? I am. Uh, my freshman year of college at SUNY Plattsburgh, I entered a haiku contest. I got third place. I got a ten dollar gift card to Fye. Wow, that you know that's pretty that's pretty good. I'd take that. Yeah. I don't remember what I bought. Um, I know I I did buy a DVD of House on Haunted Hill and The Last Man on Earth, but that was only like five dollars. I don't remember what the rest of it went towards. This was before I had a DVD player actually, because it was a long time ago. But my roommate had a computer. With a DVD-ROM. So, wow, fancy. Yeah. So we would watch movies on that. I'll tell you, I mean, that's a better prize than a $10 gift card to a store that no longer exists and <laughs> a stuffed, plushy, annoying orange. Uh, yes, because you're an award-winning playwright. <laughs> exactly, yes. Those are my... We're quite prestigious I know, on this show I know. Here. <laughs> That was also third place, right? So we're both third place... Uh, yeah, know, third, you know, nice. that seems to be the, the right spot for us the bronze (laughs) we we should start a group name we could call each other we'll call ourselves the bronze tigers (laughs) why why tigers is that a thing um bronze tiger yeah i mean well i guess there's a there's a super villain called bronze tiger oh okay maybe i'm pulling from that what's he from he's like a in dc comics Uh, he's gone up against like batman and green arrow and stuff speaking of well i mean a couple minutes ago speaking of vincent price are we speaking of it when did were we talking well about i vincent mentioned price? that i bought a dvd that had house on haunted hill and last man on earth on it which are both oh. vincent price movies i thought you were referring um, to the fact that 
everyone like Poe at some point in their lives. Or... There's that too. So it's really natural that I talk about Vincent Price right now. There's <laughs> yeah, it's so not, many it's reasons. It's not shoehorned in at all. It was also his birthday a couple of days ago. I mean, I don't. For you people listening, I have no idea when it was for you, but the the twenty seventh. Oh, it'll be weeks from now. Yeah. At um, the rate that I've been going with these damn things. But I watched um, the Bat for the first time. Oh yeah. The other day and. Um, it's a movie that I saw the beginning of many times growing up on TV8. I mean, it was on TV. I wasn't growing up on TV8, but the most well, sort of, I don't know. I'd seen the original 1926 film that inspired Bob Kane's design for The Batman. Mm-hmm. There was another version made a few years later in like 1931, I think, which is which was one of those like early widescreen movies really? 20, 20 years before anybody was actually Wow. doing it uh yeah, I didn't know widely. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I haven't seen that one and but this one from 1959 I'd always heard bad things about and it kind of looks like the silent version like often for silent films of like the late 20s when they were really like perfecting the art of film at the time. Mm-hmm. There are some gorgeous movies in that era. It, you know, just the use of shadows and everything is just beautiful. And then to watch the late 50s one, it's like a TV show, kind of. Oh. So I, I would always start watching it and then be like, this, is, this isn't this is my bat. This is some <laughs> stupid bat. But I, I just, like, I don't know, just sat down and watched the whole thing. And it's actually, it's really enjoyable. It's, um, it's really gay. It's, well, I mean, it's got Vincent Price... It also has Agnes Moorhead from Citizen Kane and Bewitched. And it has Gavin Gordon, who played Lord Byron in Bride of Frankenstein. Ah. So it's a very, uh, if not gay, very flamboyant movie. And it's it's humorous, and Vincent Price has his usual, like, Vincent Price wit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It was an enjoyable time. Yeah, the, uh, the original Bat is one that I definitely want to check out. As a Batman fan, I, you know... I want to see that and uh, The Man Who Laughs. Yeah, I've never seen that one either. Which, I'm, you know, I've seen pictures from it. Yeah. Of Conrad Veit. 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 That's one of those names that I've only yeah. ever read, never heard pronounced. And, I mean, you can clearly see the, the influence on the Joker in that. So, I mean, that alone is intriguing enough. I, I, I'd really like to check those out. Did you see the Black Dahlia, the Brian De Palma film? No, I I haven't. I actually, a few weeks ago when I watched David Fincher's Zodiac, I was like, oh, I want to watch another like kind of serial killer mystery movie based on real life, which is a surprisingly very narrow genre. I'm trying to look at like other great movies in that genre. But that was one that I, that I was like, mm. I, I want to check that out, but I didn't have access to it at the time. I've been meaning to rewatch it. I mean, I could let you borrow it if you want. I don't know if it's on Netflix or anything. No, it's not. If, if it was, I would have watched it. Oh, okay. But... Do you want to borrow it? Maybe at some point. Right now, yeah. I'm, I'm just... Yeah. It's crazy. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but I want to rewatch it. But I, run... I want to rewatch it after I finally get around to seeing The Man Who Laughs, because that film actually ties into the plot. Really? Of um, Black Dahlia. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when movies kind of hijack other movies mm. like that. And in De Palma movies, that happens quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I need to watch Brian De Palma anyway. Like, I always want to show people the movie Body Double that he directed, 
but before showing it to them, I always want to be like, wait, well, all right, going in, have you seen Rear Window, Vertigo, and Psycho? Because you can enjoy it without seeing those, but if you've seen those, you'll enjoy it so much more. No, but I've and... heard that Lady Gaga song. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, Lady Gaga. Remember when she was cool? Um, Not really. Like three years, four years ago. When she was really popular, or when she was like. I thought she was. I liked all the songs I heard by her in like 2010, maybe 2011. I really liked. I think it was before that. I think it was like oh nine, oh ten. Hmm. I I I, I, I do like the that uh, the bad romance song. Yeah, I think it's good. But like stuff now, like that G that G U Y song. I, I haven't just, heard it. I've been getting up fairly early lately and just putting on VH1 and watching whatever is on the top 20 countdown. So Trying I get, to get with the times. Get a lot of these songs stuck in my head. Some of them are really good. There's this song by this Scottish band called Churches called The Mother We Share. And it's it's so I can't think of any Scottish band that's not adorable. But like this this band is so adorable and the song just like it gets in your head and it's it's annoying that it's in there, but like it's, I'd prefer that to be in there than some other horrible song. Mm. Um, but there's some shitty music on the Iggy Azalea, this Australian hip hop girl. <sighs> oh, and there's that really creepy chandelier video. Have you seen that? That's another Australian artist, actually. Sia, I think her name is. Um, mm, no, I, I don't know. It's the video. Well, the song's not that bad. The video is one of the girls from the TV show Dance Moms. Oh, God. Just Well, okay. <laughs> I've never seen a full episode of any of those shows, but, like, the moms on those shows are horrible. But the, there, there is talent in a lot of the kids. And, like, the the kid in this video is extremely talented, and she does this amazing, like, dance Okay, I, I didn't hear that. I didn't, I didn't hear that you said it was one of the kids. Oh, okay. I thought it was, yeah. like, one of the moms, and I'm like, no, oh, no, good no. lord. And I just imagined, like, that main... I don't know the, the I guess the face of Dance Moms, whoever that lady is, Abby. Yeah. Oh my God, I've seen commercials like on Hulu and stuff for that, and it's just in the little doses that I've had, it's it's just so obnoxious that I can't even sit through like fifteen yeah. seconds of it. You, and you it's feel so bad awful. for those kids, but it's it's awesome that this kid. I'm. A, this might lead to better stuff for her. I know that. Um, I guess. I wish I could remember the artist's name. I think it is Sia. It's like S-I-A, I think. Um, she performed the song on on the Ellen show. Or is it just Ellen? No, the Ellen show. The Ellen DeGeneres show. I don't know. Yeah, her show. Ellen's show. That talk show hosted by Ellen DeGeneres. And the singer just stood in a corner facing the wall and had the little girl like do the dance like on the stage. So everybody was like just watching her. Mm. And it's it's... I don't know, you should check it out sometime. Just look up Chandelier video. <laughs> okay. Alright. I will be hip with music. <laughs> modern music. And this is all music that I'm watching on VH1, so the really hip people got sick of this music like three months ago. Yeah, I am so out of touch with with modern day music. It's it's insane. Even even artists that I like, I I haven't kept up with what any of them are doing for the last five years or three years or something it's I'm, awful 
so out of touch. I bought a Weezer CD the other day. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And a Ringo Starr CD. And an Alice Cooper CD. And there's a George Harrison CD in the mail. <laughs> um, <sighs> yeah, that reminds me that uh, for my birthday, Kayla got me and her tickets to go see Beck perform at uh, Mass Mocha. And we just found out that Sean Lennon is going to be opening up for him. That's cool. Yeah. So that happens sometime next month, which is kind of timely, as a matter of fact, because next month, we'll the topic of next month will tie into into that in some way. But we'll we'll talk more about <laughs> that at the end of the show. We I only have teas. Uh, I only ever got his first album. I don't really know much of what he's done since then. Sean Lennon? Yeah. I've only heard his first album, too. Because he used to play Home on MTV from time to time in, like, the late 90s. I don't know. Yeah, I know that he's been touring with Yoko as the Plastic Ono Band. Are people mad about that? I I haven't heard any negative thing. I mean, the Plastic Ono Band was always just kind of like... It never really had a definitive kind of set group of people anyway. It was, yeah. If anyone's going to be the Plastic Ono Band, it should be them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. <laughs> there is another film that I watched this week that I do want to talk about. The Bling Ring. Oh. It was a Sofia Coppola film that came out last year. Yeah. I didn't really know what to expect. I'm not a huge Sofia Coppola fan, but... <laughs> As demonstrated in our discussion about Godfather. <laughs> Director-wise, I think she's a good director. And I haven't... I mean, this is only the third film of hers that I've seen out of, I think, the five that she's done. And I haven't hated any of them. But this one was just was really good. The pacing of it was really interesting because it just starts and meanders. And it doesn't. it's not very uh, eventful. And it's just kind of like sitting back and watching like these kids do stuff, mm. which is kind of her style. She's not really like a plot-driven filmmaker, which isn't really necessary. Like you know, I mean, I feel like most the majority of filmmakers are plot-driven. But you know, it's there are so many great filmmakers who just don't really care about that at all. Mm-hmm. It's just all about the mood and yeah. all about just totally people and the characters. The characters yeah, and like I. I want to rewatch it because I feel like I didn't get all of it. Like I got, I mean, I not get, like I understood all of it, mm-hmm. but I just, I want to go back. I'm and... not stupid. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I understood it, but, but I just, like, I, I kind of just want to watch it again and like just peel back some layers and yeah, totally dive into it. But, uh, it's my second Emma Watson film. Right, I'm trying. I was, I was kept trying to think like, who's the actress in it? Is it is Selena Gomez in it as well? <laughs> no, no. Am I, am I thinking of Spring, Spring Breakers? <laughs> oh, God damn! It, I keep getting those movies confused. Well, they were around the same time, yeah. Uh, and it was like those two movies, and then the other ones like that were like uh, Wolf of Wall Street, and there's another big one that I can't think of right now that like. <clears throat> they were all these like American excess type mm. movies, and but it's just it's just about these kids who are in this Twitter, Facebook, 
TMZ world and mm-hmm. they're and it, so obsessed with celebrities and their world and they want to be in that world and it's based on a true story right yeah where in, you know don't go into too many plot details because the story to me sounds very intriguing and i do want to check out the movie but my understanding of like of the story that it's based on is like there are these group of girls who figure out if they just like check out these websites of like tmz and stuff or like the star watcher websites where yeah. basically like celebrities movements are tracked like to the minute by paparazzi and so they're able to see like they'll they're able to know when paris hilton yeah. is away from her home they're like on a website like oh paris hilton's throwing a party in new york city I guess she's out of town and right then... so that they can go and like break into her house that's all i know yeah there's actually there's one guy but it is mostly girls. Uh, and the guy is actually sort of the character who we meet the other characters through. And it's, it's odd because like the celebrities whose houses they go to, Lindsay Lohan is an actress, but the rest of them are all like reality stars. So like socialites and that kind of Yeah. Thing. So it's like they're celebrities because they're famous, mm-hmm. but they're only famous because they're famous. Right. Like Paris Hilton and... Like Kim Kardashian and... Well, they don't go to her house. They might have in real life, but they don't in the movie. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I was just throwing out oh, yeah. names of people like that. Like uh, Audrina Patridge, who I don't even really know who that is. And I, I hear that name from time to time, and I'll look it up to see who she is, and I, I forget. Mm. But she's a reality yeah, show I, person. I don't even know. And there's a couple other names that I don't remember. But what's cool is Paris Hilton actually let them use her actual house for filming. Wow. That so is it's, crazy. So it's like these actors are doing exactly what the real life people did. They just go into this house and... And Paris Hilton has throw pillows with her own face on them. <laughs> that is weird. Yeah, and just so much Or should I say, stuff. that's hot. That's hot. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so much stuff in these people's houses and it's sickening mm. and it's almost like oh no they're stealing this stuff would you even notice yeah who cares like and it is yes yeah, stealing is bad but it's like it's just i i don't know it's it's weird it's just the stuff is just this stuff and yeah. it just floats around the world and somebody happens to have it now and then later somebody else has it I don't know. But Emma Watson, she starts out as, like, a, a minor character and then, like, becomes a main character through the course of the film. And she does... The the only other film I've seen of hers was Perks of Being a Wallflower, in which she is an American. And in this film, she's also an American. And I like that she has two very distinct American accents in these movies. Because hmm. she is a very, like, rich California girl. Gotcha. type voice yeah. uh like you'll you'd hear on a show like keeping up with the kardashians mm-hmm. and then in perks she's this just regular person a know. normal person <laughs> yeah a normie or whatever but yeah i uh i want to see some more sofia coppola movies i mean I, I still haven't seen the virgin suicides or whatever that last one was with i think it was was it steven dorf it's about this know. guy and his daughter, like, reconnecting or something. Came out, like, a couple of years ago. Uh, and I want to see more Emma Watson. I don't I don't know if there's a lot 
more Emma Watson out there besides the Harry Potter movies. Um, well, Noah. She was in Noah. Which yep. I, I missed. And that one, that's one that was shot in 3D, right? Oh, I don't know. I didn't see it in 3D. Oh. Okay, maybe I can watch it on DVD then. Uh, cool, yeah. I'll, 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 I'd like to check out The Bling Ring. And I want to check out Spring Breakers, too. Spring Breakers is definitely one of the best movies that I saw um, that came out in 2013. Hmm. Maybe it's the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> not, no, it's not. But would you yeah. say that Akira is better than Spring Breakers? If you were, if if you were in some situation where these two movies were in any way comparable, I'd probably have to go with Spring Breakers. Like if there was a gun to my head, I don't know. All right. Well, <laughs> let's find out more. <laughs> so yeah, the movie of the week is akira to round out our look at our our brief look at japanese cinema it's only fitting that we that we look at a genre that is has really come to dominate maybe not dominate japanese entertainment but definitely in the way that we as americans sort of view japanese media Japanimation. Japanimation, yeah. Which was a term that, in talking about uh, the movie after we watched it, I realized that that was a term that I used to use as as the, the way to describe anime films. Before, before the word anime was thrown around, people would call them Japanimations. And I haven't heard anyone use that word in years. Yeah. And then you brought it up, and I'm like, holy shit, that's right, Japanimation. <laughs> it's crazy. When did everybody start saying anime? Because as soon as people started saying anime, if you said Japanimation, you got, like, these dirty looks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is weird. I mean, it's not like anime is, is like, the... I don't know, it's not like there's, like, a dictionary that's, like, anime is the correct word. And who are these anime people to be judging me? Damn it. I, I produced a news package when I was uh, taking TV field production at ACC about the anime club. Mm. And um, the fuck's wrong with those people? I don't know. No, that, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with it? You made the documentary. No, what, it was, was... Is, is there something wrong with, with people who like anime, Tim? Is there something you'd like to say to the, to the anime community? No, but the president of the club was a furry, and he told me that on camera, and I'm not sure why. I didn't ask. <laughs> he wanted to know if you wanted to see his... <laughs> what What would you call it? His furries? His his furry costume? I don't know the terms of furry I, culture. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, there is, there is a stigma of, like, anime fans that they're just, like, nerds or whatever, but that's kind of old-fashioned because it's such a, like you said, dominant thing now yeah i mean it really has grown in popularity i mean i feel like when i was growing up in my experience it, it was like i'd go over to chris's house and that's where i first got exposed to that kind of thing because chris's oldest brother john was kind of like you know he was the one who had all like the cool movies and music and always all this stuff that like you would just it would just blow my mind like oh i didn't know that anything like this existed in any form you know and so there he'd i'd always just hear these 
sort of rumors about movies like Akira and Princess Mononoke and like Ninja Scroll and um oh like Ghost in the Shell that's another movie that I would hear about just like stuff like that that I that I you know heard about but didn't really see until a few years later I guess and that was back when it was like oh that's it's a Japanimation but then when I got to high school anime became more prevalent on Cartoon Network uh, they had a whole block of programming right after school called Toonami that had Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball Z, and then stuff like Cowboy Bebop, Outlaw Star, Trigun, all these different kinds of, of shows. And I think, you know, it, it, it seems to be that, like the initial reaction of a lot of people when they see anime, either in like the television show or like a movie. It seems like the initial reaction is kind of just like, "Well, this is this is dumb. Or, this is stupid." And the the jokes are weird and the sensibilities are strange and it kind of has this like perverted nature to it almost because there's like animated scenes of graphic nudity or hyperviolence or just like weird sex stuff or you know, it was all just like this sort of cloud of mystery hanging over it, and it it freaks a lot of people out, I think, because it's just so different. And that was sort of my initial experience getting into uh, Dragon Ball Z. It was kind of like I saw a couple episodes on, and I was always just like, this looks so stupid. The characters, you know, some of them just are drawn in this sort of cutesy way, and this just never looked like anything of interest was happening. But somewhere along the line, uh, Chris, I actually, I specifically remember the day. It was like around Halloween one year and we were going to a haunted hayride and we were standing in line to, to get onto the, onto the haunted hayride. And Chris was like, so I watched an episode of Dragon Ball Z and it was really, really good. It was awesome, actually. And since then, I've watched like 10 episodes or something and it's, it's, pretty amazing and you should watch it and so yeah we got into the habit of like you come home after school and then five o'clock there's a new episode of dragon ball z and that got me into just like experiencing more of that kind of anime stuff and you go to school and then suddenly like you notice like everybody like people you know your classmates wearing Dragon Ball Z t-shirts or then like there's like the kids who maybe have like some manga and then you go into the store and now like you go into like uh, like Barnes and Noble and there's like a huge manga section like it, it really has just exploded like the popularity of, of anime what was your experience with with anime uh well I mean bef- years before I ever even thought of like where anything comes from I would see that sort of style on shows on Nickelodeon, which I didn't realize were being animated by Japanese animators, like Inspector Gadget, or um, I don't remember what it was called, but there was some show about koalas, and there was one with, like, there's some sort of, like, space-time warp thing from Australia Australia to some fantasy world or something. (laughs) I don't know. Um, And I just remember them being weird and... 
And then I think at some point in like the early 90s, MTV started rerunning Speed Racer, which I never really got into. But I remember being like, oh, that's that style. Right. And then TNT, back when they would show cool movies like we talked about in the Godzilla episode, and they had things like Monster Vision and 100% Weird, they would have some nights where they would show these movies that they would refer to as Japanimation. Uh, like Robot Carnival, Vampire Hunter D, and Akira. And they would mix them sometimes with these other kind of like underground cartoons. Well, not underground, but like not really mainstream and not for kids. Things like Heavy Metal and Mm -hmm. uh, um, Ralph Bakshi's American Pop. And I sort of, it just seemed like this, like, cool, like, underground thing to Right, me, yeah. Which a lot of things that TNT would show late at night, like, felt that way to me. So I'd be all about it. And, um, you know, then I would start reading articles about the whole, like, Japanimation explosion in, like, different magazines and stuff. And uh, I never really got into the TV shows, though. Like, when... I met my friend Steve Nally, who our listeners might remember as the person who subjected us to Frankenstein Unbound. Thanks, Steve. (laughs) Uh, It was in an eighth grade. I was in ninth grade. He was in eighth grade. But I was taking an eighth grade Spanish class because I had never taken Spanish before. So I had to take the previous year. And he had just moved to our school district. And we were talking about how we both loved the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I was like, oh, cool, we like the same things. And mm-hmm. he was like, oh, you know what you got to do. After school, you got to go home and you got to watch Sailor Moon. It's amazing, <laughs> you would love it. And I'm like, well, okay, if we got to that from us talking about Rocky Horror, mm-hmm. then maybe it's connected in some way, or maybe, like, I don't know, but I expected to love it. And I, So a few days in a row, I would go home and watch Sailor Moon. I just couldn't get into it. And then the whole Pokemon thing happened. Right. Where it was just Pokemon was everywhere mm-hmm. and Pokemon sort of became the face of what was then being called anime. And I just didn't give any of it a chance. Mm-hmm. And I, I never watched Dragon Ball Z and I never really sought out any of the, the movies either. I never, I don't know, and I, I would hear good things about like a lot of the movies. Like, um, was it Grave of the Fireflies? Yeah. That, yeah. And, um, Fist of the North Star, I think is one. Wicked City, which I actually have the live action remake of Wicked City on DVD. I never got around to watching it, but hmm. it wasn't until college when uh, I was shown Princess Mononoke that I was like, oh yeah, anime. Yeah. Like, why haven't I been following this? And then I proceeded to not follow it. <laughs> right. And then, I don't know, I just never really got into it that much. I mean, much. It, it is. It's it's a whole world unto itself. Mm. There are a lot of different kinds of anime. I wish that we had Jared Macduff here with us. Let's go get him. He's our, our resident anime expert. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to have... I, I wish he could weigh in. Because he's watched way more anime than than I know of anybody else he's watched the he's watched the most do you remember kate truesdale uh, i know the name she went to school with us and she was also at acc when i was doing that um package on the the anime club mm. 
And I actually asked her if she had any anime on like video or DVD that I could just like sort of like pan over, just like make a big pile of it. Mm-hmm. And, just, and she filled up two backpacks and brought them and was like, this is all anime. And I was like, okay, this is amazing. And there was a lot of it. And some of it was hentai. Ah. <laughs> and there is a stigma. And some there was a while when you would mention anime and people would immediately be like, oh, that's cartoon porn. Right. Which is so weird. That they'd be like, oh, there, like some Japanese animation is porn. Therefore, all of it must be. It's like, well, you know, there is some American cartoon porn out there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and it definitely... It makes it weird when, like, okay, so you're, so I'm a high school kid. This is back in 2003, 2004, 2000, 2002. Well, it was probably 2002, 2003. And I'm getting into Dragon Ball Z. And I'm starting to really like it, and I'm just, like, totally engrossed. And I want to know more about it. So I go online to the internet, and I look up Dragon Ball Z. And lo and behold, there are all of these pictures of the characters from Dragon Ball Z <laughs> naked and uh, in sexual positions that I did not know could even exist. If a parent had seen <laughs> what I was doing, which started as like an innocent investigation into a new discovery that I was making, it would seem that it's just like... Oh, it. That's what this Japanimation stuff is. It's all naked girls and weird tentacle sex. And I mean, if you catch any anime at the right time, I think somebody <laughs> would question, like, what are you watching? As a fan of Italian horror movies, I mean, I can. You can sympathize. Sympathize with that, yeah. yeah. I've been watching a movie that I thought was perfectly normal, and then the moment my mother or one time my grandmother would walk in, <laughs> there's just this random scene that is just the most ridiculous nonsense yeah. ever, and I'm like, I don't, I didn't see it coming. I'm sorry. I'll change this. <laughs> yeah, and that was actually like going, getting coming all the way full circle back to Akira. That was one of my first sort of instances of actually seeing some of Akira. It just so happened to be like. Chris and I came home from school one day over to his house and like John and some of his friends, I think were like watching it. And it just so happened to be the scene where Tetsuo and his girlfriend, uh, Kauri steal, uh, Kaneda's bike and then are attacked by the biker gang and the biker gang rips Kauri's shirt off and punches her in the face and like she falls down and like it's it's this horribly brutal moment of just it was it was shocking to watch yeah it's it's tough to watch even now you're like oh this is this is rough seeing that like as a kid it just created this whole like holy shit like i should in there is no way i should be watching this right now and so, I mean, Akira, in my mind, just had this, like, there was always a mystique about it. This mystery of, like, what is this crazy thing? At that point, like, cartoons, you know, I'm watching, like, Batman the Animated Series, and, like, they can't even show broken glass on screen, you know? <laughs> Which is just one of their random rules they had to abide yeah. by. But they, they couldn't show, you know, on, on, on 
on Batman, they couldn't show anybody being killed or any blood or anybody smoking, smoking, you know, all this kind of stuff. Violence, the violence was very, very tame. That's what a cartoon was, you know, that's what like cartoons are for kids. Then all of a sudden you're seeing this thing where it's, it's a cartoon, but there's somebody's guts pouring out all over the, all over the sidewalk as he struggles to scoop them back into his torso. Or there's like a little kid who's watches his, his caretaker just get blown away who just moments ago shot a dog right in the head. And it's just like, this is two dogs fucked up. It just, you, 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 as a kid, you just, you know, you're not prepared for that. So I think part of the stigma also is that like parents view that kind of thing as like, this is a, it's a perversion. You're taking like this, this thing that's meant for children and twisting it in a way that kids should not be seeing. And you're going to confuse the kids. You're going to make them, you know, uh, transgress into deviant behavior and all this kind of stuff. But I don't know. In, in my mind, I, I was always just interested in, in understanding Akira. It wasn't until until years later where I actually watched the whole thing. And uh, I don't think I understood it even then, <laughs> you know, when I when I watched it in high school. Um, but over the years, I've returned to it every so often, and uh, every time I watch it, as I've as I've grown and experienced more things and stuff, I I really. I really do appreciate the movie for for doing what it's doing. Cuz that was that was my the first thing after watching watching it this last time when I was talking to you about it I was like can you imagine a movie being made like this today in America and being distributed into movie theaters? Like I just I don't like it never happens. Like the, that this kind of movie just like is not made in America in any way there's just nothing like it i mean the part of the world that is built the 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 fantasy world of neo tokyo is very reminiscent of things like blade runner just in in the aesthetic quality of it but just that visceral element i mean it did it did kind of bring to mind um you know the the or the early scenes of of seeing that guy get blown away by the police yeah. reminds me of um like robocop the scene in the boardroom where ed 209 blasts the the executive away which i'd like to point out is the only scene i think i've ever seen from robocop yeah i knew that you hadn't seen robocop but i figured you were at least familiar with it they show that clip in that story of film documentary mm. that i saw actually and in a time where like you know, people say like, "Oh, movies are movies and TV. They're getting so violent." And why is why is the violence always have to be ratcheted up and stuff? You watch something like Akira, and it's like so much of the stuff that's being put out is tame and by comparison. Yeah. And also, just like the violence that is being shown in movies, most of the time isn't used as effectively as it is in something like Akira, where it really feels like it has. It's not just like 
for it's not like violence for kicks really <laughs> it's violent it's like showing it in a way that's like it creates this horrifying realism and for an animated film that is uh, it's very impressive and that's one thing about akira that regardless of how how you feel about the story or what the movie is about or anything you can't deny just like how beautiful the animation is it's just it's just gorgeous and I can't imagine like hand drawing all that shit. Yeah, this was back there was no computer in sight. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't think there's any computer animation at all in in the movie. In fact, I think Disney was the first company to incorporate 3D an- the computer animation into some of their 2D films. Was that Beauty and the Beast or did they use it in Little Mermaid? Beauty and the I think Beauty and the Beast. Cuz I remember the big the, the ballroom scene. Yeah. Yeah. And then they used it again in Aladdin with the, uh, the the lion head in the sand. Yeah. The Cave of Wonders. And then in The Lion King, they used it for the uh, the wildebeest stampede. But yeah, I mean, you, you look at the stuff that's going on in Akira and just thinking like all of that was hand-drawn or painted in the case of the backgrounds. It's just, it's flabbergasting. You could take like... The majority of shots from the movie and just that could be a poster or a t-shirt absolutely it's really striking like, yeah and that's the thing with animated movies is because you have that attention to detail because you're forced to look at every single frame mm-hmm. and examine every single frame and you essentially you're building something frame by frame so in that animation like you're giving 100 percent attention to every single bit Every single shot is given time and care. Are there many animated feature films that aren't necessarily, like, fantasy-based? They're just, like, the real world... Animated feature films that aren't real... That are that are reality-based? That aren't... Like, not based on a true story, but I just mean, like, they take place in, like, our reality... And there's not a lot of fantasy. Um, I mean, it makes sense when you're like, "Oh, we're gonna make an animated movie." There's so you can do anything you want in a, in animation. So right. like, why would we bother just doing the mundane? Mm-hmm. I can't I can't think of any right now. There are some, right? Because <laughs> I'm I'm fairly certain that I've never seen a Japanese one. But I can't really think of an American one. Well, I guess American Pop that I mentioned earlier, the Ralph Bakshi film. It's like a fictionalized look at the history of pop music in America. But it's it's still sort of uh, experimental in the way because it like intercuts like some because I mean, he always did like a lot of rotoscoping. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he would just like cut in live action backgrounds with the animation in the foreground and yeah, stuff yeah. like that and because on tv you've got things like king of the hill which is just like that could be live action like there are things on the simpsons yeah, and family yeah. guy where it's like there's no way that could right happen right but like king of the hill it's just like it's pretty grounded yeah or beavis and butthead another mike judge show yeah i mean that's a good point I remember watching some of the behind-the-scenes stuff on the Aladdin DVD, and they were talking about how 
when they're developing their movies and stuff, they always try to find that animation hook. Mm. Something that's like, if you're gonna make if you're gonna make an animated movie, why do something that you could do in live action? Like in the case of Aladdin, they're like, what will make this worth animating? You know, as opposed to just like just shooting it in real life. And in the case of Aladdin, like that the that animation hook was the genie mm. that could he could like you know just do all these crazy transform things just transform instantly and do all this stuff and that makes it worthwhile to actually do an animated it may it it services the now the story is servicing the 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 or the medium is servicing the story you know what i mean but i mean it's still like i'm not saying like that's like a wrong way to look at it or anything because it's definitely like a valid way to look at it but there's also like if somebody looks at just a landscape they could either say like i'm gonna paint this landscape or i'm gonna take out my camera and take a picture of the landscape and Mm -hmm. both of them are fine so like it'd be the same thing i think for like i mean any film could be animated that is true yeah i mean there's no it's just I mean it's very it's it's time consuming. You know, I'm actually surprised that like there's no fan project that takes like a like a a really popular movie. Like let's just say Star Wars. <laughs> Got to work Star Wars somehow into every episode. But like with the amount of like fan projects and fan movies and mm. just like the amount of stuff that people work on, like why hasn't someone just taken just like the complete audio track of Star Wars and just like just animated the whole movie. Well, that's like the um I forget what it was called, but the Night of the Living Dead film that came out a few years ago where they took the audio track of the film Night of the Living Dead from 1968 and they just gave different parts of it to all these different animators around the world. Mm. And then they ended up with like this cartoon version of Night of the Living Dead. Really? Yeah, I haven't heard of that. And it's all in different styles and like each scene is a different person and I I've never seen it, but that seems like it would be I mean, except that would be like one group doing the whole thing. Well, like and they they've done stuff like that for Star Wars, like there was a uh like a YouTube project or something. A big fan project where you basically claim parts of star wars at like i think it was like 10 or 15 seconds uh chunks and you could say like you know like oh i'm gonna take the the 15 seconds where obi-wan gives luke the lightsaber and you basically like take that section and recreate it in any way that you want so film it or do a stop motion animation or do literally anything and you send that off to someone who's organizing the whole thing and they'll insert it into this thing where into this tapestry of this literally there it was like hundreds of people had done like had made the remade the whole movie in like 15 second increments and it's uh it's crazy to watch because the quality ranges so wildly and uh yeah it's it's fun but i yeah i mean i can't I mean, I understand why, because it's so time-consuming, but, like, yeah. 
I feel like it would have happened by now. You know, some some person out there, some some animator who is just like, I'm gonna, I want to animate all of Star Wars, and just like, just just do it. You know, in like all of just like a, I don't know, certain kind of style. Just take the audio track, so you have all the dialogue, all the music, all the sound effects, and just redo all of the the video. If you had like a really good art style for it, like that's something that like lucasfilm or like lucasarts animation or something like they could actually do themselves and just like release it as like a straight to dvd thing or something people would buy that shit you know like anything like star wars animated you know but like why aren't they making like original animated films that aren't well that's the question is like literally every animated movie that comes out seems to be like it's just it's just a family children's affair think of how if if philomena had been animated animated that could work you know yeah or blue jasmine Mm -hmm. like it allows you to really just like let your imagination run wild now i'm just thinking the closest thing i can think of are the richard linklater films waking life and the scanner darkly but even, I mean, I haven't seen The Scanner Darkly, which I think is sci-fi, because it's Philip K. Dick, right? Yeah, it's based on a Philip K. Dick story, yeah. And But, like, Waking Life, it's all, like, the dreams and everything, mm-hmm. and, like, it's sort of, like, that was, it made, it made a lot of sense to do that in that style, because, like, the, th- the way everything flows into one another, and, like, right. the images sort of, like, because it's all, like, dreams and stuff. Most, but, like, most of A Scanner Darkly isn't there's not really a whole lot of sci-fi elements going on a lot of people sitting around talking a lot of people sitting around talking yeah and even then it was that very it was that style of rotoscoping which was very it's similar to what you can do on your phone right um where what like on like cartoonizing something on your phone like through like an yeah like you just like when you take out your camera you just click on the button and everything's cartoon all of a sudden Oh, I mean, I again, I haven't seen the movie, but like that's kind of. I mean, it's a, it's an, it's an, it's like it's because it is rotoscope. They're literally digitally painting over every single frame, so I mean, it has like a very realistic quality to it, I guess. Like, because you can clearly see, like, you know, oh, that's Keanu Reeves, that's Robert Downey Jr., that's Winona Ryder. It's not like stylized in a way where you know animated films they tend to have like oh all the characters have like bigger eyes and their the proportions are stylized it's not really like that at all so yeah i mean just like the lack of adult oriented animated films really makes the the anime stuff really stand out in my mind cuz like th- there's just nothing like akira not even in live action you know this is the kind of story that's being told You'd think that, like, even in, like, sci-fi films that come out, they'd be trying to reach, like, a level of imagination and creativity that comes somewhere close to Akira. And there were... It's definitely... It it could fit into that group of sci-fi films in the 80s that were all, like, dark, like, post-apocalyptic, futuristic films. Mm -hmm. Like, there... I mean... I was actually just randomly watching the special features on 
the DVD for Dario Argento's The Stendhal, the Stendhal Syndrome earlier today. And there was an interview with the production designer, and he was talking about how he had worked on a film called 2019 After the Fall of New York. Hmm. Which, yeah, it, when we started watching Akira... That's and it literally it, how the movie starts. It takes place in 2019. I'm like, wait, did they rip off that Italian movie? And it's and it literally the phrasing is like, you know, 2019 after World War III. Because there were all these... There was like a 2072. There, and as he said that the reason that movie was made, like a lot of Italian movies, is because there had been a popular American film that they were trying to rip off. And he said it was Escape from New York, which in huh. Italy was called 1997, The Escape from New York. Ah. So they were like, oh, well, 2019, after the fall of New York. <laughs> that is weird. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, like, and I, I, I compare it to Akira to, like, Blade Runner and Robocop, mm. two other movies from the 80s that just present this, like, future, and in some cases not so distant future, that is just, like, this very bleak dystopian view of like what was going to happen and i mean it really just sums up like the feeling in america of like you know the 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 reagan years i guess everyone just feeling like is world war three imminent (laughs) you know the the situation with russia was was really really tense and i can imagine like for japan specifically the idea of world war three was probably just horrifying because of the way that World War Two had worked out for yeah, them. This is the third post World War Two movie that we've seen mm-hmm. this month, and like pretty much all three have had things to say. The influence about is the very bomb. clear, yeah. yeah. And and in I mean Akira literally opens the, with the first shot being this atomic like explosion engulfing Tokyo, destroying it. And I mean, like, it, the thing that I was thinking of as I was watching it this time around, after just watching Godzilla and having our discussion about just, like, how that was such a response to... It was such a raw wound at that point that, like, they they really needed Godzilla to kind of, like, expel some of those... Exercise some of those, those demons and kind of start the healing process. Akira, to me, feels like the people... The, the characters that exist in the world of Akira, you know, you've got these, like teenagers these kids racing around on these motorcycles basically playing this game with other kids where their lives are literally on the line and they're so carefree about it they have no qualms about just like racing into traffic smashing up people's cars throwing grenades into the cars taking a pipe and just slamming someone's head with it just like just cracking their skull open all across the road and they're just treating it like it's a game, like it's tag or something. And they're living in a society that, like, just years previous, all of Tokyo was destroyed. And they're living in Neo-Tokyo, this new place. And all of society just feels so, like, messed up. And they're racing around. The movie starts, and they're they're doing this, having their, like, little game of chase at the same time that, like, there's all these protests going on. And, you know, the, the government is, like, on the... you know right on the edge of being like overthrown and it's just this the whole city in turmoil and you've got these characters just like in the middle of it just playing this dangerous brutal game this violent game and it really it reminded me of 
the deer hunter actually slight i mean spoilers for the deer hunter there's the whole i didn't see that coming (laughs) well there's the whole russian roulette angle where we see christopher walken and robert de niro playing this game of russian roulette and uh by the end of the movie christopher walken has such severe ptsd about the whole thing that he just like falls into this dark darkness of <laughs> you know he's he's doing the the russian roulette on himself like without any sort all of his emotions have been stripped away and he's just like is just a shell of the person he he was which is a common it's a it's a comment on like the on ptsd post-traumatic stress syndrome and i realized watching akira that like the society that's being presented in neo tokyo is literally like it's a whole country that's like that has ptsd from this event that happened to them where like they're just like they had the worst possible horrific thing happen the whole city was basically destroyed and they're the the people who were left are just like they just don't have any kind of real empathy anymore or they're just doing these things just to feel something or i don't know they're just like living these violent lives they've lost their identity basically and their the new identity that they have is this this really horrible violent culture so i don't know i mean like i can i can just imagine that like so many people in japan after world war ii just kind of feeling that same kind of way it's it's a country it's a whole country of people who just who went through the crucible of this unimaginable horror and i mean i I can't imagine like you know the talks of world war three happening in the 80s and they're just like oh god no they're getting like ptsd flashbacks you know and like the cure is some is just this response to to that and it's like this is like this is the world that we will all live in if this just doesn't stop along with um the 2019 in 1997, Escape from New York thing. There's also uh, the film that might have been the first film to have like a title like that, 2001 A Space Odyssey. There's a very definite influence on Akira in the ending. There's the whole... Mm, that's true. What is the sequence called in 2001? The... Oh, fuck. The star... Star Child? No, the the, the, the the I know what you're talking about. The scene like where I'm he, making these hand motions. You know where exactly he what I'm where he's about. descending into into Jupiter, basically, or when he when he reaches Jupiter, he goes through the the tunnel with all the yeah. crazy lights. I know it has a name for it. It's the something sequence, and I can't think Stargate. Of it. <sighs> no, I can't remember. Um, that there's I mean, an obvious influence in Akira mm-hmm. at the end when we are sort of like floating and then the lines it's I keep making a lot of hand movements trying to explain this and the lines are like <laughs> yeah the whoosh, lines are yeah. You know, and falling through and it's like whoa dude <laughs> in addition to that there is the idea of like that 
like in 2001, there was the whole idea of the star child. Mm-hmm. And in Akira, we have the whole idea of Akira. Right. This which sort is of like this Jesus energy like person. Figure. Yeah. It's like it's not a person, but it's not. It's it's just energy. Mm-hmm. Which is similar to like Jesus, because like Jesus is God. But and Jesus is the man. son of yeah, God. He's a, he's a man, but, but he's also a god and it's a very like of a man. annoying thing to talk about with some people because they just you just want an answer like what the hell is he but they don't won't tell you anyway um, i think i was going somewhere with that the whole 2001 influence mm-hmm. but, um like what you, what is akira to, what is akira to you <laughs> <laughs> um because even right, i saw the movie when i was very young and I feel like I'm beginning to think I didn't watch the whole movie or something. Because in my memory, Akira was uh, Kaneda. Because that his face is all over all the packaging. Right. And, yeah, and he's, you just think he's like, he's oh, like Akira, the, he's Akira. the image of, of, of Akira. Yeah. And you just see him, you know, with his, with his red jacket. Capsule his, jacket. Yeah, capsule yeah. jacket and his bike with the, with the name Akira. So you just assume that his yeah. name is Akira. Yeah, I mean, to me, like... For most of the movie, they talk about Akira like he was this, like he's he's a weapon basically, like a weapon of mass destruction. And what we see at the beginning of the movie, that sort of atomic like explosion, right. and the idea that it's like you know he's hidden down in this bunker, like sealed away, that he's you know it's this is he was like a weapon. So I mean, to me, basically, he is like the atomic bomb, this product of scientific development. We get little hints in the movie about, like, you know, we see these flashbacks to when Akira was, I guess, a real kid. And he had, there were these, these group of kids who had, like, psychic abilities. And the, the the government agency was sort of, like, trying to develop those powers and studying them and stuff. But it seems like Akira, had, you know, he had tapped into something, some primal energy source that he either couldn't control or did control and sort of purposely wiped out Tokyo. I don't know. There's a whole backstory that we don't really, yeah. we only get like hints of. And it kind of reminds me of that new Scarlett Johansson movie where she is, she does something and it causes her to slowly be able to use more and more of her brain. Cause I think we only use like 10% or something of our brain. Something like that. That's and, like the kind of, that's the figure you hear thrown around. Yeah. And she keeps like, like every few hours, it's like another percent and it's growing and growing and then she's getting all these powers and she's just causing these explosions with her mind. And like, hmm. I don't know what the movie is. I, I first heard of it. I saw the trailer before Godzilla. So I don't think it's, it'll probably be out like in two years or something hmm. and I'll be done with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the backstory I mean, the the overall story is something that, like, it definitely is good to watch multiple times. Like, going into it at the beginning, sort of, like, knowing what we know about Akira by the end of the movie. And it's able to, you're able to recontextualize things that are happening. Yeah. It's definitely the kind of movie that's good. That you gain more by watching it multiple times. And I just, I, I really appreciate films that just don't feel the need to hold your hand through everything and are just willing to kind of just present the story 
in the way that they want to present it, even if it doesn't make any sense. And when they don't go out of their way to answer all the questions you might have about what's going on, it makes it seem like a more well-rounded universe. Mm -hmm. Like, things are existing outside of the frame. Yeah. Like, there's a world going on, and walking down the street in real life, you don't know exactly what's going on with every single person you walk by. I mean, it drives me crazy when people get so hung up on, like, you know, oh, that movie is terrible. Like, they don't explain anything that's going on. Or, like, the, like Lost, there is a huge sort of fan outcry. The, 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 season fa- the, the series finale was very divisive because there were so many people saying, like, there were so many loose ends and, no, like, they didn't explain anything. Which, to that, I just don't, I just don't understand the argument at all because I feel like they went too far out of their way in the, in the last season to explain things that they didn't need to explain because people were just demanding answers but it's just like why why do you need to know the answers to everything why do you expect a movie or like a story to just have all of its loose ends tied up in a nice little bow because like real life isn't like that at all there there's stuff that like you look back on like somebody stole my piggy bank right out from right from my closet (laughs) and it's just like you will never know the answer to that question it's just a mystery you know maybe somebody will hear that episode Maybe, come yeah, forward. maybe, <laughs> but it's just like that. That's to me. I, I like unanswered questions in movies, the right unanswered questions. I don't like sometimes people will do things to kind of like just for the sake of, I don't know, being weird or pissing people off or whatever. But like when it's done naturally and if, as long as the characters, as long as you feel sort of satisfied with the arc of the characters, all the other kind of stuff, the the background of it all. I don't know. I don't need every little lingering plot tied up. And this film definitely had some interesting characters who definitely had a progression over the course of the story. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, and that's... I mean, especially poor, poor Tetsuo, you would not recognize him from <laughs> the beginning to the end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, like, it's it's amazing. Like, when we, first find, when we first see Tetsuo, he's just like this fresh-faced young... He just seems so young, hmm. just a kid who looks up to Kaneda and after his accident, like he just, you know, he, his temperament changes. And I mean, by the end of the movie, he, he physically changes as well, but yeah, I mean, I don't know it, the, the, you talked earlier about movies that don't focus so much on plot. Yeah. But focus more on mood and character, and it's it's always impressive to me when a movie can do that and do it well, because the things that like you'll always hear when you go to film school or like or any sort of writing class or anything is that it's like it's always about the story, 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 story. It always comes down to to the to the plot, to the the characters it doesn't matter what your special effects are as long as they're servicing the story i guess story and plot are different things maybe well the plot is the way in which you tell the story like Mm. in citizen kane like the story of citizen kane is the life of charles foster kane the plot is the reporter goes to these different people sort of like yeah 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 there are definitely movies who get too hung up on the plot it's very easy to overplot a movie. 
the one screenwriting class that I took when I was at Purchase, because I studied like film history and theory as opposed to filmmaking, so I only took like a couple that involved like actually making film. But the, this one screenwriting class, the professor was not a, a cinema professor. He was an English professor. Mm. And he just, it just pissed me off. I was like, you don't belong here. Like, I didn't say this to him, but like, none of us really took him seriously because he'd always, all of his influences were literary. And it's like, that's great. So go teach a fucking, like, novel writing class. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, right. this isn't, this is a different medium. Mm hmm. And it just I, there are there are different rules, and like people try to apply these rules of storytelling from literature to film, and you know that often does work. But to say that like oh you have to do it this way, mm -hmm. that's just that's horrible. Then immediately everybody in the class is like, well then I'm not gonna do it that way. Yeah, like I remember <laughs> back in high school, I think it must have been my senior year English class, we were doing a whole unit about mystery novels mm. and like mystery stories and like the, the, the teacher Mrs. started with a B Bosher Bosher. Yep. Mrs. Bosher. She had like a, uh, like a list of rules that I don't even remember where the rules came from. Some, probably some author or somebody had said like, these are the rules to make a great mystery story. And like one of the rules was, the audience should never know more than the detective in the story. Which is to say that, like, we know as much about the mystery as our main character does. So that we're in it together, basically. Mm. I understand that. But in my sort of snarky high school, you know, screw you, you can't put rules on me kind of way. Like, I remember raising my hand and being like, well, what about Twin Peaks? Because that's a story that, you know, we have our main detective, Agent Cooper. But we, the audience, are seeing a whole bunch of other stuff that he doesn't know about. And it's still a very engaging mystery. But yeah, it turned into like kind of just the whole back and forth thing. And it's weird. I never really took many stands in school. <laughs> But, like, for some reason, I planted my flag down on that and said, like, I will not <laughs> take this <laughs> oppression. I did that. So I did a similar <laughs> thing to Mrs. Bosher. She said, she always used to make these jokes, like, um, I don't know, they were, like, innocent jokes, but they were always to the effect that, like, girls take things more seriously than boys or girls are smarter than boys, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I yeah. Yeah, and like, so it was towards the end of the year, and it's just, you know, it's been the whole year of that, and she did one of those jokes, and I just looked at her, and I was like, you know that's kind of sexist, right? <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, some girls are smart, some girls are dumb, some boys are smart, some boys are dumb. Like, it's just, it's, mm. I don't know why you have to make those jokes, because I feel like maybe it's trying to compensate for like you know like centuries of like male domination right. but it's just instead of equality you're just trying to make one better than the other right and like why can't we just skip all this and she just looked at me like i didn't really think i'm sorry if did i hurt your feelings and i'm like 
And then I felt all weird. Because you're like, Cause well, she, no. Because she, she thought I was, like, really, like, upset and, like, Like, all year long, you've been like, I am as good as a woman. Yeah, and I was I just, am as good as a girl. So I was just like, no, I don't know. I was just, <laughs> I was just thinking out loud. Like, and I just, like, <laughs> but she didn't make those jokes anymore. Oh, uh, yeah. But, like, I don't know. I. It's <laughs> funny that you brought that up because it suddenly jogged something in my memory. And I remember her saying that kind of stuff. Which is just, it's funny. I never would have thought about that. Because, like, I, I don't understand, like, from a, from a, the, the female perspective, you know, it's probably very different, but, like, from the male perspective, growing up, 90% of my teachers were female. Right. So, like, that's the attitude that I was always exposed to, mm-hmm. like, as opposed to, like, male teachers looking down on female students or something. It always seemed like there were a lot of, like, female teachers who would sort of like make these jokes and stuff but it was okay because they were women yeah i mean it is a weird sort of thing that you kind of have to figure out like the sort of um, not necessarily hypocritical nature of certain things like that where like you can get in trouble for like if it was a guy teacher saying like guys are better boys are are smarter like there would be a controversy about that like yeah. nowadays like there, you you read that on some bullshit website, you know, news site about like you know, parents suing teacher after, they're suing the school after teacher says that men are better than women, you know. But I mean, it's okay for girls to say that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't know. That's a whole other discussion. Yeah, I... <laughs> and I hold no bitterness about it. But <laughs> I have nothing invested. Yeah, in I really, that. I really liked Mrs. Bosher. <laughs> I always got along with her, you know, but um, I just... <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that's basically the thing is, like, I feel like the too many American films, especially modern movies, are just, like, they hold the rules about what a movie's supposed to be too sacred. I think audiences as well. Like, films are supposed to be, like, a certain kind of way, and as soon as it's something else, everybody, I don't know, people don't know how to take it. And I just, I, you know, I, I love it when, when I see something like Akira that, you know, it isn't afraid to just like take these long scenes of just silence and just like strip the music away. doesn't feel the need to just go wall to wall score through the whole damn thing, you know? I think that might be part of the reason why the 21st century, so many um, Americans at least have turned more towards uh, television and like away from the cinema mm-hmm. because they in episodic television, like not necessarily sitcoms, but in dramas at least, you have this opportunity to create these whole worlds at a like a leisurely pace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the audience is in it for the characters more than they're in it just for the story. And there are some that like it is an ongoing story and you really want to find out, oh, what happens next episode? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, because they've got like sometimes like 13 to 20 something hours to tell a story instead of like two hours right they can just stretch their legs and just yeah i mean absolutely and there's just so much more freedom nowadays on tv than than in film well in mainstream hollywood film right i mean you take something like like imagine you know vince gilligan trying to pitch breaking bad to a movie studio as just like a film I, I mean, I, at this point, after watching the whole show, I just can't imagine being able to sort of naturally 
take that whole arc and cram it into two hours. It's, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And that, that is one thing that we should say is that Akira is based on, on a manga series that was an ongoing saga. And the, the actual stuff that we see in Akira, the story that happens, I think, I haven't read the manga, but uh, Chris Phelps has. And I think he was telling me that it was about like one third of the manga is actually taken up by the events of the movie. So there's a lot of different plot elements that are kind of like combined and sort of streamlined in the movie to kind of, you know, make it all fit. And it's like an epic manga. It's it's over two thousand pages. Or... Mm. And but I mean that's that's the sense that you get while watching it that it is just like this. It's this slice of an event. We just see this this thing happen, and we don't really we don't really grasp grasp the full nature of it. But I mean, it definitely makes me want to read the manga, mm. learn more about everything that's going on. Because it's such a great world that's created. You mentioned the film doesn't feel the need to be wall-to-wall score. And I just, like, one of my favorite things about it was when it would just go to, like, dead silence. Like the guts falling out mm-hmm. of Tetsuo's stomach. Yeah, he's hallucinating and he he falls to the to the sidewalk and he feels and sees all of his guts spill out of his stomach. And just the idea that there's like this silence and like you see like there's like regular sound through it, like footsteps and things and then like when he falls to the ground like it's such an odd feeling for the viewer like when his hands hit the pavement when he first falls that there's no sound. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of like sitting in an adjustable chair and uh, you go to like make it go higher or no, you go, you go, I'm sorry, you go to make it go lower. Mm-hmm. And so like you click the button, but you're already as low as you can go. So you're expecting oh, this feeling right. yeah, yeah, yeah. and you have this weird, like, yeah, like, that's what that, that reminds me of. Feeling of like, you know, I should be falling, but I'm not. Am I, am I falling? Like, yeah, yeah. that kind of strange jarring nature. Or, like, when you're sitting in a parked car and the car that's parked next to you starts backing up. Mm. And, like, I don't know. Oh, yeah, that <laughs> fucks with your head, for sure. Because you're like, are we rolling right now? Like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, and and um, in Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity, which you've seen that. Yes. There's a scene where Fred McMurray's character mentions uh, how he was walking on the street and he wasn't able to hear his footsteps anymore. Mm. And... He said something about, like, you if you can't hear your own footsteps, you're, like, a dead man walking or something like that. I don't remember mm. how he said it. Probably in a brilliant Billy Wilder way. Right. Um, but, I don't know, that's just, like, it's just always weird when there's, like, that lack of sound. Mm-hmm. Like, I really love that effect. And that happens several times in this movie. Yeah. And the sound, like, the, the Foley work is very odd. It's very, not... I mean, it sounds like it would sound like footsteps and stuff, but just it has this like really spare quality to it. Yeah, I and think I know. I think very, I know what you're talking about. It's very mannered. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Deliberate, for sure. Yeah, I just think like it just seems like filmmakers aren't as willing to take those kinds of storytelling risks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there are filmmakers out there who 
who do amazing things. But I don't know, man. It's just I'm consistently just amazed at like how far Japan pushes the the, the line when it comes to like delivering a story and how it's structured and stuff because it can get so convoluted in anime and in, in video games like there there's the um the series uh, kingdom hearts which is a video game series in which it takes characters from disney yeah and teams them up with characters from like final fantasy and stuff so it's this odd meshing of of sentiments and sensibilities going on you play the first game and you're like okay i get the story it's kind of confusing maybe you play the second game and you're like did i miss something what's going on and there's a bunch of spin-off games and you're just like what the fuck kind of tangled web is this and it's unbelievable because it's just like they're telling this crazy ass like convoluted thing about like souls and like people when you lose your soul you become like two people and like then you're like you're what's known as like a heartless and then you're this other thing and that person changed into this person and it's just so crazy and mickey mouse is in the middle of it and it's just like <laughs> this is the most bizarre thing you know so I'm, I'm just like amazed that like they're they're just like not afraid to go to these weird places and i wish that like I don't know, I wish that going to sit down and watch like these big budget blockbusters. I want them to get weird, you know what I mean? They like, don't want do, to do weird. things that are that are that might be confusing. Do things that might like leave us with lingering questions. They're too expensive. Yeah. It's so ridiculously expensive to make one of these like big ass blockbuster movies that they're afraid. Mm-hmm. One that actually comes to mind is Cloverfield. Like, that's one where, like, they didn't explain where the monster came from Mm -hmm. at all. Like, we're just plopped down in the middle of it, like a a fucking monster attacks. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know what it's doing there. We don't know anything. We don't even know, like, what Cloverfield means. That, to me, that's, that's, that's cool. And if they hadn't done the found footage style, and if they had hired big name actors, mm-hmm. there would have been some stupid explanation because they would have had a lot more money invested that they would have had to have made back. And, and that movie was a hit. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they'd spent more on it. I don't know if they would have made all the money back or if it would have been as big a hit. Mm-hmm. They, no one knows. It's a big gamble. So. Right. And it's just like, it's not like I think it's cool just because it's like, yeah man like it's cool because they don't treat us like sheep man <laughs> but it's just like i think it's it it services the 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 film better because we're not overly concerned with the plot of it all that's the macguffin you know i guess it's the thing that just moves our the the our characters along like and- without having to deal with like the all the science behind it or like explaining like this is where it came from we you have to stop the movie and have all this exposition like we're just with the characters and we just experience the events in the same way that the characters would it's just more effective and when they when bigger movies do pull something like that off they are the movies that tend to end up with like cult followings because they leave a lot to your imagination. Yeah. You, you keep thinking about the world in your head. Totally. Even something, I mean, like, 
to get back to Star Wars because that's what we always end up talking about. It's funny before you even said Star Wars, I'm like, that's what yeah, I thought. Yeah, like you, you in the, the original film, there's random things like it can make the Kessel Run exactly. And whatever yeah. Han Solo talks about parsecs. the Kessel Run, and then, like so you're it, thinking about like, well, what is what's, that? What's the run? What yeah. was that story that we're not privy to? At or this point? like, you know, when Luke and Obi Wan are talking about like Anakin Skywalker, Luke Skywalker's dad, and he's like, you know, you fought in the Clone Wars, and he's like, oh yeah, I fought in the Clone Wars with your father. He was a great pilot, and he's like, what were the Clone Wars? Yeah, and it just like leaves. I don't know, it, just, it, it makes the world more alive. And you're seeing characters in the background, and you're like, who's that guy? Who's that guy? And it just it keeps the movie alive in your head after you're done watching it, because it just seems like there are infinite possibilities. And the Friday the 13th series. <laughs> that, for me, growing up, I wasn't... like I, I like Star Wars, but I wasn't a huge Star Wars fan. Mm-hmm. But, but Jason Voorhees, I was all about Jason. And like... This isn't even the filmmakers putting a lot of thought into something. Right. It's almost it just as, happened, a, as yeah. a result of them not putting a lot of thought into things. There are all these what could be seen as holes mm-hmm. in the stories or like the sequels don't quite connect to each other. So there are all, all these like if you go online, you see all these like timelines like, right, oh, yeah. well, if this movie took place in this year, mm-hmm. then the reason that this happens is because of this and like. And, like, there are some characters who just disappear, like Tommy Jarvis's mom. They never find her body or anything. She just, like, she looks to the right, goes, <gasps> and then cut. Like, and you don't, you don't know what happened. And, like, there, um, I don't remember what movie first mentions Jason's dad, but you kind of, you start to wonder about him at one point. Mm. And then they don't talk about him again until Jason goes to hell. Mm. You still don't really know much about him, yeah. but... And, like, so you're left to just, like, imagine all these different things. And then you get, like, there's, like, a series of books based on Jason and right. all these different things. And, and I mean, like, we don't even know, like, why Jason is the way he is, you know? Like, why is he an invincible monster? Or did <laughs> like, he come back from the dead? Or was he never dead? And if he wasn't ever dead, why yeah. was his mom killing people? Spoilers. <laughs> Why yeah. is his mom killing people in the first one? And then how is he, like, suddenly grown up? Like, is that bit at the end of the first one just, like, a vision that she has? A little Jason popping out of the water? Like, what is going on? And you, you, know, start, you just don't know. And you start to use your imagination to, like, answer all these questions for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure everyone who grew up with those movies has their own answers. Right. And, um, I don't know. It's It's... It's and neat. Th- yeah, for sure. And it's like when I I re- I, I, I watched um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning, I believe, is like the prequel film to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake from like 2005 or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, I, I watched it thinking like, this could be cool because it maybe it could function not as just like a prequel to the remake, but like it also somewhat functions as like a prequel to the original because in the original movie it's never explained like why this family is the way it is or where they came from or like what Leatherface's upbringing was or any of that shit so I thought you know that you could do some interesting things like kind of just going back to the beginning of it and it's just like it just sucks all the mystery out of it when you're just like watching these dopey explanations of like well Leatherface he used to work in like a slaughterhouse 
and like he got an affinity for the chainsaw and like it's just so I don't know it overplotted feels like the right word where it's just as like you're just focusing too much on like the the explanation of it all instead of just like let's just let's let's just be with this character let's just experience things like through the if we're gonna do a movie about Leatherface's upbringing let's like look at the world through his eyes more so instead of just like almost presenting it like a list of facts like this is where he got the change though this is where he got the mess this is where he got this you know like that's all that's the plot of it all it's not the story it's funny i'm just realizing the distinction between plot and story (laughs) as we've been talking and uh it it makes sense to me now it's like rob zombie's halloween yeah how like michael myers is always this mysterious character and then in rob zombie's halloween he's like the protagonist Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like and i've grown to appreciate rob zombie's halloween as its own entity yeah um because it's it's a different thing he's going for but like one of the great things about the original halloween was why the fuck is any of this happening yeah like he's the boogeyman and he's gonna get you that's that's pretty much it yeah and i i just find myself gravitating more and more like to films like when i think about like my favorite films they're they always tend to be movies that leave these lingering questions these unanswered mysteries like when we, in our seven samurai episode i brought up 2001 space odyssey as being one of my favorite movies that's a movie that's very divisive from a lot of people and they they look at the the end of that movie and say like it doesn't make any sense or whatever but it's like maybe you're not supposed to try to like make logical sense out of it it's more about just like the mood that's presented the feelings you get while these images are happening in relation to everything else that we just saw and that's why like i i gravitate towards like david lynch's stuff because it's it's not about so many of his movies aren't about like the story necessarily it's about just like so concerned with the mood and the feeling the trying to get these emotions out of you through not through the story but through the images and the the sound and the the pacing of it you start to feel these things not so much about like you know this guy is bad man because he is bad and we're going to explain why he is bad and that will make you scared it's like you're just seeing these things that you don't understand and that can be frightening. I think if I could answer all the questions that I was left with after watching Lost Highway, I wouldn't really love the movie anymore. Hmm. Cuz that's one of the cuz it's it's a mystery. And when the movie's over, you're still trying to solve the mystery. Yeah. And I've been trying to solve it for the past like five years since i first saw it and it sticks with me and i love it yeah for sure and what i love about david lynch is that like he is so like so many of his movies are like in the he's in the same kind of mindset while making them and he's coming from like a a very similar place for, for a lot of the stories that like by examining the other stuff you can kind of piece together an overall sort of vision for what this sort of Lynchian world that he's sort of created 
So you watch like Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive and then rewatch Lost Highway and you're like, I kind of, I can understand more so. I, you, once you understand his language, he has a whole, his whole, his own language unto, unto himself. Certain images and certain colors and certain things just suggest something else. And there's like this, uh, this interview I was watching with Laura Dern where she was talking about like her relationship while acting with David Lynch and she talks about just like the the way in which he directs her is very strange can be she was like it's probably very strange for other people looking at it because it's just like he'll say okay I want you to do that again but do it more like like a wind or <laughs> more more like a soft breeze and it's like she understands what that means what like what he wants to see from her when he says something like that or there's like a scene in the in the pilot of twin peaks where he was talking to laura flynn boyle and he was just like i want you to come i want you to walk into the light like a like a fawn like a baby deer and you watch it and you're like god damn if that if she does not look like a baby deer (laughs) It is insane. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I like... I like to wonder about things. And Akira definitely satisfies that that need. But I have, a, I have a feeling that if they ever do get that live-action remake oh, up yeah. and running, <laughs> there's not going to be a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah, I can't even imagine what a Hollywoodized version of Akira would even look like. And I guess, like, in a recent interview, the guy who's directing it, I don't know who he is, um, he said something like, oh, yeah, well, I think, you know, this is going to be a big improvement because, you know, like, the Japanese style is very odd. Like, he was like, yeah, it's, you know, it's this is going to make it, like, into, like, a real movie or something like that, like... See, and that's the attitude that I'm talking about, where it's like, it's just like what do you to, even to a lot of people, like, there's there's a real movie, and then there's, like, these other things that don't make any sense that are, like, trying to be a movie, and it's like, that's not a movie. And it's just like, what? this guy's been involved in making this movie the past, like, four, four or five years or something, and I don't it's know. like, I remember, why have like, you focused so much time on this if you don't even like the movie? Yeah. I, but I, there's been so many different actors and people involved. Yeah, in this at one time mess. Leonardo DiCaprio was attached, like he was producing it and he was going to star as. Which is so Because <laughs> like how, what, watching the film, how old do you think these characters are? I 16, I thought they were teenagers. Seventeen, yeah. Because like all the actors they would mention who have been involved in the remake, over the past like at least ten years. We're all people in like mid to late twenties, and like yeah, it was just. I mean, can you imagine like Leonardo DiCaprio being like the punk teenager guy, trying to be like that, that thing. And they, you know, then the movie was supposedly set in Neo Manhattan. Yeah. Which I mean makes sense, you know. You're it's 2019 after the fall of New York, just like exactly, yeah. Um, it's just like the Godzilla remake where it's like, you know, it's being made from an American perspective. Makes sense to set it in America, I guess. But it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's very strange. There's actually a trailer that recently came online just a couple weeks ago for a fan-made Akira movie. 
don't know if you've seen it or heard about it, yeah. but like it's yeah, it's a trailer, live action, fan made trailer for Akira, and um, it's you know I mean it's definitely you can tell I mean they're making it with like what they can as as uh, with whatever means they have, but some of the stuff in there is pretty damn impressive in the way that they are able to sort of adapt the style to live action is uh, surprisingly good in some cases. So yeah, I mean, I, I would, you know, encourage people to maybe check that out. It's kind of, it's interesting at the very least. Do like post-apocalyptic futuristic films ever take place in Washington, D.C.? Um, I feel like they they should. I can't think like, of like any. At some point, one would because the only I mean, that's the, the only thing I can think of is uh, the video game Fallout Three. That takes place in uh, the Capital Wasteland. That that's in Washington D.C. It's all fucking destroyed, hmm. and that's a really cool world that they create there. But that's a video game. Yeah, I mean, you think it'd be like a natural place to go. One more thing I want to talk about Akira before we wrap it up is the music, because I I feel like it would be just shameful to not at least touch on it and just not at least praise it, because the music in Akira is so damn good, so creative and imaginative and just different, but so moving and exciting and thrilling and it's just it's it's one of those movie soundtracks that like totally stands on its own not many film scores you can actually like take the cd and and just like pop it in in the car while you're driving or listen to it on your headphones or just like play it in any kind of situation and actually have it hold up on its own not just like the, not a soundtrack with songs on it but like the actual score the 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 orchestral instrumentation of the movie but akira is one of those that is it's it's great in almost any setting i i remember when i was in florida i was dry I was, I was riding my bike everywhere and i would love to uh put my ipod in and just play some of the you know the music that's playing at the beginning of the movie when they're racing around on their motorcycles and I'd be on my bike and I'd, you know, just like listen to that music and it just makes you feel just badass. <laughs> <laughs> and there are moments, I mean, it's not all like adrenaline rush music. There are mm. these sort of like slow moments where it sounds like they're using like, like classical Japanese type mm-hmm. music. A lot of lot of it, choral sort of vocal kind of stuff, and that sort of um, these weird like percussion elements. I don't know. It's it's, just, it's mixing like this like modern with the ancient sort of and just. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And it it makes it feel very timeless. Because even even now, like I've never, I haven't heard any other kind of music that sounds anything like the Akira soundtrack. It really just blends those two elements 
just perfectly. And it marries the movie in a way that like, I can't imagine another movie or adaptation being made that doesn't have that music. Like it's in my mind, it's like, it just marries it too perfectly. It's like the star Wars music, you know, you just can't imagine star Wars without that star Warsian music. Don't worry. I'm sure for the Akira remake, they'll get Danny Elfman. <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> Tim Burton's Akira, starring Johnny Depp oh, and Helena Bottom Carner. Here's this guy in his mid 50s as Canada. <laughs> no, they'd probably have Johnny Depp play uh, like the Colonel or something. Yeah. Who we haven't really talked about at all. He's a very interesting character. Very interesting character, and he's very like you never know where he stands really because mm-hmm. you're like he's a very archetypal typal kind of character in a lot of anime Hmm. like the old military guy who rides the line between government and society i've seen that that kind of character is in a lot of different kinds of things but i don't know i think i feel like maybe like the colonel and akira is sort of the genesis of of that kind of person and you never really for so much of the movie, you don't really know what exactly anything is that's happening. Yeah. Your impulse is to be like, the colonel, he's a dick. Mm-hmm. He's a bad guy, because that's just, that's that character in right. other yeah, movies. He, he's the fucking, he's the military guy. He seems like he's the one who's antagonizing the 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 kids. He sort of, he takes Tetsuo away and is like, kill him whenever, you know, if he starts to, if his power starts to get out of control, just yeah. put him down. You know, and he's the one who's, like, trying to, like, you know, he's enacting martial law. He's, like, just sort of seems like this crazed military just fucking gun guy. But it's gray. It's not just... But then, like, you start to see by the end, like, the reasoning for the things he was doing. And, like, especially in, like, the in the society where all of the, the politicians and stuff were just totally corrupt and oblivious to anything, any of the real issues. And there were willing to you know abandon him and push him aside in the moment where you know neo tokyo needed him the most so i mean yeah you really feel like he was doing what he was doing for the truly for the benefit of everyone he's trying to salvage what was anything that was left of neo tokyo one of the actors that was mentioned for the remake to play the colonel was Morgan Freeman. And I feel like if that was to happen, mm. you would immediately be like, oh, well, he must be a good guy. For sure, for sure. But the most recent actor to be mentioned for him was Ken Watanabe. Of course. Because he's the go-to Asian. He's the go-to Japanese <laughs> actor in Hollywood. Now, this was your first time watching your Blu-ray yes. of it, right? There was... <laughs> For a little while, I was sitting there thinking like, oh, Max must be pissed because this... This is a really bad copy. It's all like scratched and shit. They didn't restore it well. And then I realized that I was stupid. And what was happening was there were all these like dust particles mm-hmm. that they had drawn. There and like after like destruction, there would be like things floating in the air. Right, right, right. And then I'm like, "Oh my god, they and this is hand drawn." Mm-hmm. And they're just like this is something that in recent years watching things like Avatar I've been like blown away by like dust in the air and I'm mm. like they're doing a pretty good job of it here. <laughs> they're doing a good job of that yeah. dust. 
like i don't know for some reason dust impresses me <laughs> and just like the fact that they would take the time to like make an atmosphere mm-hmm. like the like like finding nemo all the underwater scenes which are like that's the most so underwater du- so dusty in there the dust in underwater nemo dust is, is amazing <laughs> Um, but all you know, all the air bubbles and. No, I mean, like, there's know, definitely whatever. in in this uh, this transfer on the Blu-ray, the 25th anniversary Blu-ray of Akira. Mm. Um, there are some dust particles that look like it is sort of like film dust. But what's impressive about it, about the transfer in general, is that like it maintains an inherent sort of film grain. Yeah, and I'm not talking about like the 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 film dust or like the dust particles that and scratches on the on the film itself, but the grain, the actual um, the emulsion of the film itself, what it was photographed on, uh, in in on and movie on film, movies that are shot on film. There's this sometimes almost imper- imperceptible kind of fuzz to it. Yeah, that is that is the physical. Nate, the the physical makeup of the film that the image is on and something like akira you can imagine like you you could go in there and basically like recolorize the whole movie and take away that that film grain and make it make all the colors really sharp make all that all the lines really you know all the colors really rich all the lines really sharp but what i like about this is that it you you can you feel like it is it's you feel the film nature of it and it makes it feel unlike modern kind of anime which is all done digitally in a computer in which it has none of that uh, physical quality to it so i really like the the way that this uh this transfer looks i i mean you can compare it to the dvd version um which not the not the dvd version that i have which came with the because right. that is the same transfer, but previous releases of the DVD version, I I watched like a comparison video online, and like, there's like a huge difference. So yeah, I mean the movie looks great, and uh, so I would highly I would recommend it for people out there who maybe are trying to find a copy of it. Twenty fifth anniversary Blu-ray is uh, probably the best release of the movie to date, and what's also great is it has three different audio tracks. There's the original Japanese audio. There's the original uh, uh, English dub of it, and then there's a new English dub of it. So, yeah, it's cool. And that's actually one thing. Quickly before we wrap it up, is is the uh, we watched it. We watched the Japanese version of it with with English subtitles. And one of the things we were talking about after we were done watching it is like, it's almost a shame. Well, I mean, it is a shame watching something as beautifully animated as as akira and you keep having to divert your eyes to read yeah. the, the text and it's something that you have to deal with anytime you watch like a foreign film in the original language which most of the time is like my preferred method to watch something because you're not in you're not having somebody else injecting their own kind of spin on what's happening in the story and I haven't I haven't watched the uh, the English dub of Akira, but I think it's something that I, I would like to do at some point, just to not have to keep reading the the words and just let the animation just envelop you. 
But yeah, I mean, I wish I could understand Japanese because that'd be the best of. It's the best possible way to watch it, probably. No Fucking subtitles. Tower of Babel. Yeah, god damn it. But okay, so I think that will wrap it up for our Akira discussion. If somebody is not too familiar with anime and they just saw Akira because they were like, oh, talking movies is going to be doing Akira. I better go watch that. <laughs> and they've just listened to our episode. And now they're like, well, I want to go watch some more anime, but only one. What's that? What one movie should they watch? Um, <clears throat> I would say. Now, it's been a while since I've seen Princess Mononoke. But I would definitely say like some some Miyazaki is probably a good place to go. His stuff is is everything that I've seen from him is is amazing. A very different kind of story telling and uh, sensibility that he has. I read a review of um, because I was looking at the Akira Wikipedia page earlier. There was a link to like Time Out Magazine's top 100 animated films of all time. <clears throat> And first place was My Neighbor Totoro. Mm -hmm. And in the little capsule review of it, it was saying that he is like the Ozu of animation. Yeah, basically. Actually, when I when when you when I just brought up Miyazaki and thinking about it, and the difference between a movie like My Neighbor Totoro or Ponyo, um, or Kiki's Delivery Service or any of these other movies compared to Akira, it is like comparing I Was Born But to something like Seven Samurai. Yeah. Because, yeah, Miyazaki often concerns himself with these children and it's very, these intimate kind of family stories. They're not about, like, you know, violence or anything. They're accessible to all ages, but they're very kind of poignant and you get that same kind of serene, peaceful quality as watching something from Ozu. And this really like points out like one of the flaws here of well not a flaw because we it's not like we were we set out to be like we're going to cover all of Japanese cinema in one month. Uh, yeah. This was a really brief overview and we tried to cover very different bases. Aspects of the yeah. And there's so much more out there. Yeah, I mean like this literally is just like the scratching the the surface barely scratching the surface. And like we we picked like one silent film from one director who is very unlike all the other Japanese filmmakers who are making silent films. And then there are so many other Japanese horror movies or so many other, well, samurai movies, but also just like all the, like the giants of world cinema in the fifties mm-hmm. and sixties. And, and then so many different kinds of animation and monster movies. And just like, I mean, there's tons of, there's so it's a whole, it's a whole world. Yeah. And this is, uh, I mean, I don't know if we'll end up doing, this again at some point where we're like all right this month we're gonna do france or something like that like it's just mm. but it's been interesting and it's you know I'm, I'm glad we did it because i it's it's a nation whose cinema i'm not as familiar with as i should be and i mean they have just like such a distinct point of view mm. they tell stories that like no other filmmakers from other countries are are telling and um yeah, I, I really like a lot of the sensibilities that they have, and um, I yeah, there's a lot of really great Japanese films that I love. So yeah, I really enjoyed this. Um, I definitely want to watch more Uzu, uh, Ozu. 
because uh, I was born, but was the first and only film of his that I that I'd seen. And I definitely want to watch more Kurosawa, but I also want to watch <clears throat> some Miyazaki and some Narusa, Kobayashi, um, Mizuguchi, like all these other people I just don't really know anything about. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I keep hearing their names and. I gotta catch up. There's too many movies that exist. There are far too many movies, <laughs> and you to can exist. never watch it all. So you have to be picky. Yeah, and I and I'm <laughs> that's why we spend months watching <laughs> shit like Cutthroat Island and Pluto Nash because you yeah. gotta be picky, damn it. Well, you don't know what's gonna stick until you watch it. So right. you know. Next month we're doing something very different. We're talking music on talking movies. <laughs> as hilarious as that may seem to some <laughs> um yeah we're we're looking at the the um june is going to be beatles month on talking movies now the beatles were this rock and roll band in the 60s and uh they made some movies and were involved in some movies uh, they had a couple yeah. records um couple hit singles yeah they had some hits they were, they were pretty big in there <laughs> you might have heard some of them um in all seriousness uh the beatles are one of my all-time favorite bands i'm sure there Mine are too. many many people out there who would say the same thing yeah. um it's not the most outlandish or unique idea to or, or sentiment but screw it i mean i love the beatles music so much um and I know you're a huge Beatles fan, so I'm excited to talk about talk about Beatles for a month. And they are definitely one of the top bands who have really involved themselves in cinema. Hmm. Yeah, in in very fundamental ways for for members of the group. Hmm. Um. Yeah. So uh, this is the idea of, for this kind of came because uh, this year is, I believe, the fiftieth anniversary of Hard Day's Night. And as such, uh, the Criterion Collection is releasing uh, Hard Day's Night on DVD and Blu-ray at the end of June. So uh, initially, I was like, "Yeah, it'd be, it'd be nice to pick that up and then go into it." But I think we're gonna we're gonna build up to it. So we'll have to settle for for the the DVDs that we have um, before we watch the Criterion one. So yeah, next next episode is. Uh, is we're tackling two movies actually both directed by richard lester the first two films that the beatles were involved with um as a group hard day's night and help so yeah i'm i'm excited to get into this this very different kind of totally different kind of movie than anything we talked about before and i have a feeling that you know we're going to be talking more about the band and the music then maybe we are talking about the film side of things but as often ends up happening once we turn off the microphones for the podcast because we just we tend to talk about the beatles anyway yeah um they've been a huge part of my life for as long as i can remember so um yeah you know it's, i've noticed like it's 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 always more fun on this show talking about things that we're passionate about rather than talking about movies that are kind of just like, oh, well, these are, this is a movie that we watched and 
I never really heard of it, and I don't really have any sort of attachment to it. So it's harder to talk <laughs> about it in a way than I mean, like this month was really fun for me because like I love Seven Samurai and Akira and Godzilla, so like that was just it was just more fun to to dive into that, you know. And um, I really liked the 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 Jalo month because that was like that's your wheelhouse, you know. And so this this time we're doing the Beatles, and you know that's something that we're both very passionate about. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So yeah, hard days, night, and help. Up next. But thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I am Max. I am Tim. And we will see you next time. Canada. Tetsuo. <laughs>